everyone, welcome to Live Your Dream Podcast. I'm your host, Lena. It's been only about two months since I launched the podcast and I've been absolutely amazed and grateful by the huge response. Thank you so much for listening from more than 50 different countries around the world. I'm so curious to learn about you and where you're listening from. So who's listening and from where? Who's listening from Australia, Brazil, UK, and Russia? And from Japan, South Africa, Palestine, and Mauritania? So please send me a message and tell me where you're listening from and say hi. I would love to hear from you and learn about what you think about the show. I've heard from many of you who are listening to my show and you asked me, how come I don't share more about my journey and my story on the show? I got a lot of questions, especially about my decision to become a career coach and how I coach people. So I thought I would talk a little bit about it before we start the show today. I remember sitting in the class on the first day of my coaching school, and I felt like I came home. It felt so comfortable and natural, and I felt like I was wearing clothes that was so flattering and fit me so well. As many of you know, I worked as a corporate lawyer at a big law firm in New York City and as an investment banker before that. And not that working as a corporate lawyer or investment banker was uncomfortable, but I've never experienced this feeling of coming home in a professional setting. And I think you can only feel that when what you're doing is aligned with who you are. I've always loved listening to people and their stories and felt the most fulfilled when I help and support other people. And looking back, I've had many experiences in my life where it was so apparent that this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. But instead, I followed what other people wanted me to do and did the jobs that they thought was cool and prestigious because I didn't know what it is that I wanted for myself. And after many years of feeling very unfulfilled and very unhappy, I had no choice but to make the changes that I needed to make. And I feel like being a coach is my life's work. And I'm so happy that every day I get to support and help others to find and do the work that they believe is meaningful and fulfilling. I've learned over the years that the reason why so many people are unhappy, either professionally or personally, is because they make the wrong decision for themselves. They choose the wrong job or marry the wrong person, and the price they have to pay for these wrong decisions can be quite costly and very painful. And why do people make wrong decisions? Because they don't know themselves. They don't ever take the time to get to know who they really are, what their values are, and what is that they really want. So they end up making decisions that is not right for them. I've made this classic mistake in my career and I want to help you avoid them. So in my coaching, I help my clients to learn more about themselves and I help them overcome internal obstacles because we oftentimes stand in our own way of living a life that we really want. And I help them take action so they can move their career in a direction that is right for them. So what I try to do in this process is to bridge the gap between their present where they are now, and their future, where they want to be. Many of my clients have made career transitions, either within their own industry or to something completely different. But the commonality is that they are now on the path to living a life that brings them joy and purpose. 
So if you're interested in learning more about it, please send me a message on my website at selenalee.co. That is C-E-L-I-N-A-L-E.co. And I'll be happy to answer any questions you may have. The coaching can be done in person if you're in New York City or on the phone if you're anywhere else in the world. In addition to one-on-one coaching, I also give a lot of talks and do workshops and seminars. So if you send me an email, I'll add you to my email list and I'll be able to let you know when I visit your city. So in today's episode, I talked to Dennis Hong, the professor and the founding director of Romella Robotics and Mechanisms Laboratory at UCLA. When Dennis was six years old, he saw Star Wars for the first time, and he was absolutely mesmerized by the robots he saw in the movie. And he knew that one day he will grow up to become the person who makes these robots. And now he is living his dream. He has invented so many amazing robots, which you'll hear about, and the world's first car that can be driven by the blind. And becoming a robot scientist was only one of his dreams, and you'll hear about his three other childhood dreams and how he's achieving them. And of course, his journey to success was not all smooth sailing, and he also had some really tough times in his career, and he shares what he has learned from these experiences. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, Dennis. Hello, Selena. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you for being here. Let's start with your childhood. Where were you born and where did you grow up? Sure. So I was born in the United States. I was born in Palos Verdes, California, Los Angeles. Uh, But when I was three years old, our family moved to Seoul, South Korea. And I actually grew up in Korea. Yeah. Yeah. And you were there until college. That's right. Uh, So I went to... uh, for, for the, the, the Korean audience, I went to uh, Gyeonggi Yuchuan Kindergarten, mm-hmm. Pampo Elementary School, Pangbe uh, Middle School, and Seoul High School. And then I actually went to Korea University of Mechanical Engineering, but yeah. I didn't graduate uh, from Korea University. I transferred to uh, Wisconsin-Madison. I see. So yeah. when you were growing up, did you have a childhood dream? Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, so this is a true story. As you know, I'm a roboticist. I do yes. research and I build robots. And when I was seven years old... Uh, we were visiting the uh, United States, and you probably know the movie Star Wars. I know that you did not watch, you haven't watched Star Wars even just yet, right? Yeah. Yes. I will. <laughs> so in Star Wars, I was so excited to see all the spaceships and the lightsabers and everything. But in the movie, there's these two robots. You probably know C3PO, it's a humanoid yes, robot, the gold color. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You also know R2D2, it looks like a big trash can. Yes. I was so mesmerized by those robots. So on my way home back in the car after the movie, in the car, I told my mom and dad, I'm going to be a robot scientist and I follow my dream and here today. Wow, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. You achieved your childhood dream. <laughs> it's true. But, but I mean, uh, so everybody knows me as a roboticist, but roboticist is not my only dream. I actually had more dreams than just a, a robot scientist. I had mm-hmm. four dreams. Yeah. Yeah. You probably should know because you interviewed me for your book. That's right. <laughs> so, but let's talk about yeah, what that. What are my four dreams? So you wanted to be a chef. A chef, correct. A magician. A magician. A theme park designer. Theme park ride designer. And, then and you, a robot scientist. That's right. So the first dream of being a robot scientist, I'm living my dream truly. And that's my job. Yeah. Uh, that's what I do every day. And I'm, I cannot be more happier than that. Uh, the second dream, uh, uh, a chef, uh, it's not my job, but I'm almost, I mean, I'm a semi-professional cook. I cook every day at home. I, yeah. you know, uh, after like 6 p.m. when I, uh, you know, uh, uh, c- come back home, I stop by the grocery store, a farmer's market, and I buy whatever's uh, fresh at the spot. 
So I don't uh, pre-plan what I'm going to cook. I just buy whatever fresh ingredients. And I come back home, and I put all the ingredients that I bought on the big island, and I improvise at the spot. And that's the fun part. So if you understand the cooking process, and if you understand the, uh, the characteristic of the materials, uh, not the materials, but the, 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 uh, the, the ingredients, then you can actually... You can design. Mm-hmm. You can you can design your own dish. Mm. So like, ah, oh, I have these and these are the constraints. And I, in my imagination, I I I think about this dish that I'm gonna cook. Okay. So after you cooking, I finish cooking the a dish, and when you eat it, if the flavors and the textures and the temperature, everything matches what you actually thought, you know, you 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 thought in your head, then boom, you get you, there's like. Uh, difficult to explain, but there's like a, a really big satisfaction that gives you happiness too. Uh, is that yeah. similar to you being an engineer? Uh, yeah. Now that you you say that, I think so. Like when I when you design something, a mechanical designer, when you do robotics, there's a lot of constraints. There's different materials and you know uh, processes. Yeah. So yeah, in a, in a way, I, yeah. Come to think of it, it's similar to that. Maybe that's why I'm I not only enjoy it, but that's why I'm good at it too. Yeah, and you're so good at it that you competed in a Master Chef competition. Oh. <laughs> you were on TV. Yeah, that's a little <laughs> embarrassing. So I was on uh, Master Chef USA season four. Mm-hmm. So so uh, the reason why I actually entered that is because uh, not because it's just my, you know cooking is not my not only my passion but also at the time I was working on a robotics project for building robots for everyday lives ah. for helping the elderly and for the disabled. So I wanted to show people my vision. I wanted to have a robot cook with me in the kitchen as a sous chef. And if, again, if people see that, then they will see this, the, the vision that I have. And that's what, one of the reasons why I actually participated in the show. Wow. So what did you make on the show? Oh, I can talk about this for more than an hour. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> briefly talk about uh, what you so, made. Yeah. So I cooked a dish. Uh, it was a Chilean sea bass mm-hmm. uh, with, uh, over uh, cold somen noodles uh, with a special glaze made with soy and uh, uh uh, jalapeno glaze that I built. You know, wow, it's, it's that good. sounds yummy. Yes. So you make robots, you cook. Mm-hmm. What else do you do? You, oh, yeah. you do magic. I'm also a magician. That's right. Uh, so I I think my hobby as a magician started about the same time when I was seven years old. So again, I grew up in Korea and, and in Korea, magic was something, It's not pop, it was not that popular, right? So my dad uh, traveled around the world for business and every time he visited a country, he bought me those like, uh, you know, small magic, kits like a cheesy you know you know what I'm talking yeah, about yeah. Magic kits. and then uh, I practiced it and I showed it to my friends and everyone was like oh this is the coolest thing and I really, really enjoyed it so after that whenever my dad went uh, abroad I asked him to buy me more magic stuff and then I started to actually study magic I studied the uh, the theory and all those kind of things so the magic that I do is these days are mostly uh, the magic tricks that I invented so Wow. Yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, um, uh, I don't know if I can talk about this in podcasts. You know, Netflix? Yeah. Ne- Netflix. There's course. a new uh, miniseries called Magic for Humans by. Wow. Uh, yeah. uh, I'm actually, episode three is about me with, <gasps> with the magician Justin Wilman. Oh, wow. Check, is this, uh, is yeah, this like a out. top secret? Uh, no, no, it's out. Uh, I, oh, yeah, nice. It's, it's, it's well. Okay. So, everybody who's listening to uh, this podcast, it's Netflix Magic for Humans. Episode three. Episode three. Yes. Awesome. Everyone check it out. Yeah. So cool. Oh my yeah. God. I got to check it out. <laughs> and then mm-hmm. your another dream was theme park designer. Yeah. So uh, among the four dreams, a roboticist, a chef, a magician. I mean, roboticist is my, my job. Uh, a chef, I mean, you can cook if you want to. Magic also has a hobby. That's fine. But 
designing rides for a theme park. Mm -hmm. I mean, even if you want to do that, it's, it's difficult to actually, you know, make it happen. Right. Uh, but for me, I had a lot of opportunities. Uh, for example, uh, the last uh, World Expo was in Yeosu, Korea. So I was in charge of the entire uh, robotics pavilion, which was the one of the two most popular. Uh, I mean, you, you, you know what I'm talking yes, about. Yeah, of you, course. You, yeah. So I was in charge of that. So that started uh, uh, my actual involvement with these kind of things. And I'm currently, I can't really disclose it on, on this uh, publicly, but I'm working with some famous theme parks. Wow. Using some of our technologies. And some of our robotics projects in our lab at UCLA mm. is not just for uh, uh, just robotics per se, but it's more for uh, using robotics technology for entertainment. Wow. So we're doing a lot of uh, interesting secret projects. That's Which so has cool. to do with theme parks as well. Yeah. So even at an early age, you like to like make things? Oh, yes. Yeah? Uh, not only make things, but also break things. Break things, things yeah. So... Uh, when I was a kid, this is a true story. Every single home appliance at home, uh, color TV, radios, mixer, you know that you know vacuum cleaner. Every single home appliance, I disassembled it and I broke it. Oh wow! Every single thing because I was, you know, I was a curious <laughs> kid. I was a mischievous kid, but I was a very curious kid. Whenever I saw these like machines or uh, electronics, I had to figure out how it worked. So uh, I had to open it up and I broke every single home appliance. And home. your parents were okay with it? <laughs> so I really, really, truly from the bottom of my heart, thank my parents because of course, if I did something wrong, I had a hard time and my mom and dad, you know, but when I actually opened up a uh, home appliance and I, and I broke it, they never gave me a hard time because wow. they understood that the reason why I opened it up and broke it was not because I was just a mischievous kid, but because uh, they understood that it was because of curiosity. And I really, really thanked them. Now I'm a dad, so I know how difficult that is. Yeah. Uh, however, it was actually a very good investment for my parents, in my opinion, because <laughs> when I opened it up and broke it, that was because I wanted to figure out how it works. So now I do understand uh, how it works. So now I can fix things. So these days when I visit my parents' place, I always bring a, um, a toolbox to and I always, <laughs> uh, you know, whatever is broken, I fix, fix uh, those uh, for them for free. Wow, so that's a good uh, payback. Yeah, and also, um, you know, everybody's good at something, but also not that good at certain things. Right, like, uh, of course. Uh, I, I'm, a good, I, I'm a good cook. I do magic. I'm good with, you know, uh, making things and fixing things. But I was never good at sports. Ah, never good at sports. That's so right. when I was even as a kid, when my friends went out and you know, they when they play baseball and things like that, the things that I liked to like to do when I was a kid was uh, in my bedroom under my bed. I had these three big boxes, carpet mm -hmm. boxes, and inside there, uh, uh, it contained my treasure. And my treasure was uh, were broken toys. Ah. Yeah. So everybody gets you know as a kid, your parents buy you a, a toy, right? But once it's broken, they throw it away. But for me, I loved collecting broken toys. Oh, because, why? Because uh, like these days, if your friend gets the newest you know, toy, then everybody wants it too, right? Right. But for me, it was different. I want, always want to have uh, a special toy that only I have and nobody has it. I only want to have... Wow, only, so you like make it? Yeah. So what I did <laughs> is uh, when my friends go out and play baseball and things like that at home, I, I take up my three treasure tests the three boxes with broken toys, and I try to make a toy out of uh, broken parts. And I come up with uh, pinball machines, you know, robots and different type of things. And that was, you know, my joy and that was my hobby. I really enjoyed doing that. And then you'd like show it to your friends? Oh, yeah. So ah. after I fix it. So 
usually during the break, summer break and winter break. Mm-hmm. During the break, I I make a masterpiece, and uh, as the the, uh, the the start of the school you know approaches, everybody's like, oh my, my spring break is over. But I got really excited because I wanted to really show my masterpiece creation to my friends and teachers. So the first day of class, I show it to my teachers and show it to my friends. And <laughs> everybody's like, whoa, this is the coolest thing, and I'm the one who has. I'm the only one who has that toy that only only one exists in the entire world wow that's yeah. so cool yeah so i heard your mom named you dennis from a cartoon oh. character <laughs> yes so i'm a mischievous kid right you know even mm-hmm. now but even before yes, even i was now. born too mm-hmm. because uh when i was in my mom's you know belly, belly? right mm-hmm. my mom and dad they were having breakfast and one day i was in my in my mom's belly i was start to like kick right and my mom <laughs> said oh honey look at this he's kicking and my dad said oh if this is a boy he's gonna be a really mischievous kid so let's name him dennis because ah. he was actually uh reading the newspaper he's actually uh reading the the comic strip dennis the menace ah, right and that's how i got cute. my name dennis True and story. you lived up to your name yes i am the mischievous <laughs> dennis the menace uh, there were so many incidents that happened when I was a kid. I can't remember. I think it was like when I was four years old when our family just moved to Korea. Uh, I was in the kindergarten uh, playground and there's a sandbox. <clears throat> and I was a very curious kid. So playing mm-hmm. the sandbox, I was alone. It was like in the evening time. It was about t- time to go home. But I got curious how far deep this actual sand is or, you know, what's beneath the sand. I was really curious. So I start digging, <laughs> digging, digging, digging deeper and deeper. And as you know, you know, it's very difficult to dig a very deep hole. You actually have to make it really wide. So I start to, you know, make this gigantic hole. Wow. And because I was having so much fun, I didn't really realize uh, how, you know, late it was. Uh, it was always nighttime. So I just came back home. And when I came back to my apartment, the, the entrance door of my house, apartment door, there was like half mm-hmm. dozen policemen and army people. And I didn't oh know what gosh. was happening, but you know, everybody, they were so crowded, I couldn't uh, go, come into the house. So I actually really cr- uh, crawled uh, between uh, the policeman's legs and entered the home. And my mom <laughs> and dad was so surprised to see me and they hugged me and kissed me. And it turns out mm-hmm. that uh, at the time, my dad was working on some, um, uh, government classified projects and they worried uh, that I might have been kidnapped by uh, North Korean spies. So, you know, oh, wow. that, was a, that was an interesting <laughs> incident. Yeah, also, um, uh, when I think, I think it was, I was uh, in the third grade or fourth grade, I was very mm-hmm. interested in uh, rockets. You know, I was, so not just buying model rockets, but I wanted to build my own. So I started to, mm-hmm. uh, with my brother and my sister, we started, uh, looking, uh, uh, you know, looking up books in the uh, uh, encyclopedia and trying to figure out how to uh, make rocket engines. And it, we, turned out, it turns out that you can actually make uh, black powder, gunpowder, uh, the solid rocket booster uh, material. So we bought uh, potassium, nitrate, sulfur, and charcoal, and we actually made our own rocket engine. And we used to wow. uh, fly rockets. So that was all good. But, you know, when you, uh, f- you know, launch a rocket, it's really quick, right? So mm-hmm. we wanted to do something bigger. So we had a lot of leftover gunpowder or black powder and we went on to the top of the uh, uh, our apartment building and we put mm-hmm. all of the leftover gunpowder in this one container and we hid between sandbags and we lit it up and oh my then gosh. oh thank god you know i really i i could have you know we could have been really killed ourselves it was really really dangerous there was a huge it was not an explosion but there was a huge two three meter flame shooting up in the air with smoke and we panicked and ran away 
and oh, all the you know wow. the fire engines came and it was a huge uh, you know incident. Uh, you know we were mm-hmm. really really big trouble that day. <laughs> I still remember that. Uh, so at the time in Korea, you know, remote control airplanes that was something uh, pretty new. Uh, and right. because my dad is a aerospace engineer, he wanted me to learn about these things. So he actually got me a really nice uh, remote control airplane. And the only place to really fly them was near the um, the, the river Hangang River in Korea. So mm-hmm. we were flying the the airplane. Uh, and then suddenly I see these like big, uh, you know, vans and police vans and police cars just, you know, beep, beep, with the sirens uh, running, to- uh, coming towards us. And they mm-hmm. actually arrested me. This is when I was a small kid, me and my friends. Oh my gosh. And we were taken to the police station in the basement and we were actually were interrogated about something. So it turns out that uh, uh, at the time, somebody actually saw the remote control airplanes and they called the police telling them that uh, there's North Korean spies trying to bomb the Blue House. Blue House is uh, the White House in Korea where the president, uh, president lives. Uh, so right. we, uh, we had so many of those kind of uh, <laughs> funny incidents. So when you're seven years old, you watch this movie, Star mm-hmm. Wars, and you're mesmerized, and you're like, that is what I'm, I'm going to do with my life. Mm-hmm. And then you just... I followed you, my dream. You yeah. followed your dream all your life. Yeah. However, you know, to be honest with you, when I first said I'm going to be a robot scientist when I was seven years old, I mean, as a kid, you know, what do you know about robots? Yeah, what do right? you know? I just thought that they were cool. I was mm. wanted, I just thought, oh, those are the coolest thing. But I didn't know what a robot is or what why we build things. So as I grew up, I started to study and learn all the, uh, the science and math and, uh, you know, learn about robotics. But I was actually fortunate because my dad is a very well-known engineer in the in uh, aerospace engineering. And I, had a, I was fortunate to uh, have a dad and, a, uh, you know, uh, so my dad, when we travel, we visit different type, uh, different university labs, and I got to experience and see uh, different technologies, and that uh, you know inspired me to become who I am today. Yeah. So after you transferred to university yes. in the U.S., yes. you studied mechanical engineering. Yes. And then you became a robot engineer. Right? Yes. So yeah. the, one of the re- so at Korea University that I attended is one of the top universities in Korea, and especially if you in Korea if you graduate from one of the top universities, then sort of you're set for life, right? right? So leaving Korea University, that's, that's very unusual, right? Why would you leave? Uh, why would you not graduate from Korea University? The reason I left was because, you know, uh, in Korea, when you're high school, the last year in high school, when you're senior, that one year, you completely devote your life for studying because you have to prepare for the university entrance exam. And I did the same every day from morning to 2 a.m. And, you know, I study and I only study. And it's hard. It's, it's stressful. It's really hard. The reason why I was able to uh, withstand and, you know, go through all the hardship is because all my life since I was seven years old, I had the dream of becoming a robot scientist. And yeah. I knew that once I passed this university entrance exam and enter one of the top universities, then, then I can truly realize my dreams. I only looked to that, right? And I studied and I made it. I was so excited. But I was very disappointed as a freshman at university. I knocked on my professor's door. and I'm like, hi, my name is Dennis. I'm a freshman. I want to start doing some robotics research. And all the professors just shooed me away. Like, oh, you're just a freshman, right? You know, what do you know? Mm. Just take your basic classes. And I was very, very heartbroken, yeah. right? So, you know, so during my uh, freshman year, I was, I was, you know, I was very disappointed. And uh, 
my my brother uh, was uh, doing his PhD at Stanford University. So during the summer, I had a like an exchange student program. So I was at Stanford during the summer, and there, I had a chance to really see undergraduate students participating in real funded research. Yeah, and I was so envious. That's what I wanted, right? So when I came back, I was disappointed. And one day, my mom and dad you know, said, "Dennis, come here and sit down." And they've been watching me, of course, right? So they said, "No, of course you're planning to go to grad school for the United States, for the states to study abroad. But what do you think about uh, leaving now, transferring?" And they said that uh, you know, big fish must swim in the big sea. So I made a big decision, and that's why I came to the United States. And uh, at University of Wisconsin Medicine, uh, Professor John Euchre, he's a very famous roboticist, and I had a, uh, I was fortunate to work with him as an undergraduate researcher, and that really changed my life because as an undergraduate student, I was really able to participate in really funded research, and you know that set my 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 research you know direction. And you've done some amazing work. Mm-hmm. Thank um, you. Again, <laughs> cooking, no <That's> magic. <laughs> all of all of the above, yeah. and in one of your TED talk, you've done two TED talks. Yeah. You talk about um, a car for the blind. That's right. Yes. So the, the 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 car for the blind project is not really a robotics project, so it's not really my main thing. So back in 2007, this is when I first became a professor. I was untenured assistant professor. And the first project I, I took was, uh, uh, did was uh, the DARPA Urban Challenge. So DARPA Urban Challenge was the largest, the most difficult, challenging robotics competition to, till, uh, till then. So, you know, autonomous cars, robotic cars. These yeah. days, I mean, if you go to California, sometimes they go around. Uber is building them. Google's building them. Even Apple's building them. But if you go back to 2007, I think, if somebody asks you, do you think we're going to have autonomous cars? Then people thought, well, you know, I, mean, I, I saw it in science fiction, but probably not in my lifetime. But in 2007, this competition, we participated and we placed third place in the entire world. And that really put us on the map. And now people saw cars, you know, driving around without a driver. And that started to change people's thought. Like, oh, now the scientists and engineers actually have the technology to build these kind of cars. And by the time that uh, the National Federation of the Blind, NFB, heard about this and they said, oh, if the scientists and engineers have this technology, maybe they can build a car for the visually impaired. So they announced this huge project competition to the university and research lab saying, you know, scientists and engineers, if you have the technology to build a car for the blind, apply to this competition. We're going to have this big competition called the Blind Driver Challenge. And it was, of course, I was excited because I already built this, our team built this autonomous car. So I just put a blind person and we're done. So I was really <laughs> excited. So we participated in this competition. But uh, I was so excited. The very first meeting was a teleconference meeting. And that day was probably one of my, the most shocking day of my life. Because I was so excited to participate in the competition. And it turns out that in the entire world, I was the only person applied for this competition. What? Really? So then what's happening? I was like completely. <laughs> and then I learned that I made a mistake. Ah. So it turns out that this is not a competition for building a car that drives a blind person around. This is a competition to build a car that a blind person can make active decisions and actually drive. Wow. I mean, how can a blind person drive a car? <laughs> this is insane. 
So, I mean, after the meeting, so I called and sent an email to all the other professors and the team leaders from the DARPA Urban Challenge, and I asked them, how come you're not participating in this competition? And most everybody actually replied to me because I was a, you know, a, a new starting assistant professor. And their answers were like in three different types of answers. So many people said, Dennis, this is impossible. How can a blind person drive a car? So right. you're not tenured. So don't do something that's impossible. Do something that you can actually achieve. Uh, and they actually told play me, safe. yeah, play safe and do something else. And another people, a group of people told me, car for the blind? So let's say you make this, then you cannot make any money out of this. Uh, so why do that? Do something that you can actually profit from it. And another group of people even told me that, oh, the blind people, oh, those people shouldn't be driving. They should be at home. They're different from oh, us. Right, right. And then yeah. I was all really, really confused. So I started this project as a mistake because I thought it was, I can build a car where I can just put a blind person <laughs> and drive. So I started as a mistake. But now everybody's saying this is impossible, it's impossible, impossible. So I started to, I don't know how to explain, but everybody's saying it's possible. So I wanted to say, I think like, well, you know, I'm going to prove you wrong. Yeah, something mm. like that. So I decided to do it. But I mean, how can a blind person drive a car? Right. So I tried to think and do brainstorming. I couldn't get any ideas. So one day I thought, maybe, just maybe, the reason why I don't, I, I don't have any ideas how to make this car is because, maybe because I do not truly understand the people who will be using this technology. Um. So blind people, visually impaired people, I thought I never met one in my life. Of course I have. I just right. were not interested. I, you know, I didn't know about that. I was not interested. So I started to feel really shame. So one day, I decided to live 24 hours with a blindfold in my, in my head with a white cane. So I come to my office and I put this blindfold in my head. I, I can do this. I start walking outdoors. It's difficult, right? Of um, but it's kind of interesting. Uh, did you know that even if you, if you even with a blindfold, if there's a wall next to your ear, you can actually feel that there's a wall with your ear. And really, yeah, I did not yeah, know yeah, that. Yeah, try it. <laughs> and even with a white cane, if you uh, you know detect an obstacle, it's just not just that there's an obstacle. Yes, no, but with the vibration, you can gain a lot of information. So it's kind of interesting, but it's hard. So I like, oh, I think I. I did for three hours. I couldn't take it anymore. So I, I threw away my blindfold and I looked at my watch. It's been only three minutes. <gasps> <gasps> wow. So that very day, I took my uh, undergraduate students and I drove five hours to Baltimore to the National Federation of Blind headquarters. And for two nights and three days, we lived there. We slept together. We ate together. We lived together with the visually impaired people. We were there to observe them, to understand them better. But after two days, we became friends. Uh. So that day, uh, coming back home in the car, we're driving five hours in the car. And then something hit me, something I realized profound, a very simple truth is that blind people are the same as us. It's just that they cannot see, they have the same dreams, they have the same right to be happy. And once I realized that, very, very simple, obvious truth. I start to get ideas. So we start the project. So we build this car for the blind called the Blind Driver Challenge Vehicle. Uh, the first uh, vehicle uh, was really uh, very, something very simple. We, didn't, we only had $5,000 seed money. So we bought a laptop. What? And after that, we needed to have a car. So we went on eBay. So we bid on this red dune buggy. <laughs> oh so I bought this gosh. dune buggy. And with our undergraduate students, we built something, right? 
So I still remember the very first day that we tested this vehicle. Now, these days, when we test our robots and you know, all the media, news media, the uh, reporters and the TV people all come to our campus to see it. But this was different. It was a uh, very sunny spring day. It was a weekend and nobody on campus, just us. And we invited two visually impaired people from the National Federation of Blind. And we tell them how to drive the car. We give them the key, say, good luck, Godspeed. <laughs> and he starts to drive the car wow. right now of course it's it's slow it goes all the way but i was not looking at the car i was looking at my computer screen right looking at the uh sensor data and everything and suddenly on the screen it says finish and i look up and i saw something that changed my life forever what i saw that day was the big smile of the person who was driving the car wow i never seen a smile that happy yeah. And then it hit me. If I can make this one person this happy, if I truly succeed in this technology, I can make all the tens of thousands of visually impaired people, give them this happiness in the world. So my life goal changed. My, my life goal was not this small car, but a real car that can be driven on the real roads by the visually impaired. And that was the birth of this car. And uh, in 2011, January 29th, uh, we first uh, uh, demonstrated this vehicle to the general public uh, during the Rolex 24 racing event. It's a very famous uh, car racing event at the Daytona International Speedway. And it was a huge success. And that really changed my my life. Yeah. And um, people who are listening, if you're interested, you can go to TED.com and Dennis Hong and you can actually see this video. Yes. Right? Uh, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, yeah, that really changed my life. Yeah. So I don't really uh, talk about this in public. This mm-hmm. might be the first time I'm actually s- s- uh, saying this in, in, in media. But uh, so after we succeeded in this demonstration, you know, so, so for many people, me, myself and our team became heroes, right? Yeah. But we, we sort of skipped the, uh, I skipped the uh, press conference. Uh, and I went back to the hotel and I actually cried. How come? So it's, it's, it's difficult to explain. Of course, I was happy. I was not sad. So my tears were not because they were sad. But if you look at the video, check it out. You know, Mark Riccobono, he was the first driver. When he finished his round and was coming out of the car, he was hugging his wife. And you can see his tears in his eyes. Yeah. When you see that, uh, it's, it's difficult to describe. So, so, uh, so I, I'm a professor, right? So I teach in classrooms. I, I write papers. I publish papers. I build robots. I give talks. I do podcasts too, right? But I never knew that the things that I do can change the world. Oh, I knew it in my head, but I never really felt it in my heart that the things that I do can really... M- it might sound cheesy, but truly make the world a better place, give people happiness. And that very day when I saw, you know, Mark's tears in his eyes, it, it hit me. Ah, oh, the things that I do can truly, you know, impact people's life. I can truly make people happy through my technology. I can make the world a better place. Yeah. So if you look at all the projects that I do, we just talked about uh, the Blind Driver Challenge car, but... Every single project that we do, we do many things. We have chemically actuated robots, wheel-like hybrid robots, firefighting robots, demining robots, human robots, all those kind of things. But if you look at all the 
robotics project that we do, they have a common theme. And all of them is truly to make people happy and make the world a better place. Uh, firefighting on Navy ships are very dangerous. We build a robot called Sapphire, Shipboard Autonomous Firefighting Robot. It's a robot that works together with firefighters to put out fires. We build a robot called Thor, Tactical Hazardous Operations Robot for uh, Disaster Relief. This was uh, specifically for the uh, Fukushima Taichi nuclear power plant. You probably know that in Japan, uh, it's been what, five years ago because of the, uh, the tsunami, there was a huge accident in the nuclear power plant. And because of the radiation, people kind of go there. So we build robots that can truly save people's lives, right? Right. We build low-cost prosthetic limbs for people in need. When I was a kid, I saw a construction worker falling from a scaffolding. Oh my gosh! So I built a uh, we built a snake robot for climbing up scaffolding for inspection tasks. So if you look at all of these robotics technology, they are all truly to, you know, make the world a better place, and that's what we're doing, what we're doing. Yeah. And you also won the RoboCup. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's more for fun, but true. Yeah. So RoboCup is a uh, international autonomous robot soccer competition. So these are not robots that you remote control. These are robots that actually, they're fully autonomous. They look like humanoid robots, two legs, two arms, torso, they and head. They look very cute. Oh, thank you. <laughs> so they play soccer against each other. But the cool thing about this competition is the the official goal of RoboCup is by the year 2050, we want to have a team of robot soccer players play soccer against the World Cup champions and win, human World Cup champions. Wow. And towards that goal, if you go to RoboCup every year, there's so many new technologies and new robots. It's mind-boggling. It's such an uh, uh, exciting competition. We participated since uh, 2008, I think, uh, and we became the world champions in 2011 again in tw uh, 2012, again in 2013, and again in 2014. Wow. And 2015 again. So we are five-time world champions. That's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> By the way, it's, it's, some people think it's scary. So yes, it's fun and exciting, but robots playing soccer and winning the human World Cup champions, do you, do you feel any fears about these uh, robot technology Taking over? What do you, do I know. Have? I know people yeah. are worried about that, but yeah. you're the one who told me that it is humans' responsibility to use it in the best interest of humans. Right? Wise. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So because you told me that, I'm not worried about it. What do you? <laughs> how do you answer? I'm sure you get that qu question with a yeah. lot, like AI and everything. Yeah. So I mean, if you turn on the TV, the news, and the newspaper, and everything, everybody's talking about oh, these new AI and robotics. Technology will take over our jobs and, you know, using robots for war, uh, you know, it's kind of scary, you know, especially uh, not too long ago, uh, AlphaGo, the system, the artificial intelligence oh, system, right. won against the uh, yeah. Isedor and in, in, uh, the game of yeah, Go, right? that's right. And that was a huge uh, awakening or shock in the, in the psyche of us about maybe now the singularity is approaching that robots are going to be smarter than us. So there's a lot of people who worry about that. Mm -hmm. uh, so in my thought, first of all, let's talk about uh, robots taking over people's jobs. So by the way, uh, not everybody agrees on this. This is my personal opinion. Mm, robots will take over people's jobs, but this is nothing new. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, since the 18th century, the Industrial Revolution, uh, machines with automation, it's been you know replacing right. workers. And, you know, at that time, there was these movement called the Luddites, trying to, like, uh, destroy machines, uh, rage against the machines. But if you look at it, 
uh, overall, it's a very positive thing. It increased the quality of life, so it's a positive thing. So I think it's just a simple continuation. The only difference is the rate of change is increasing rapidly, and also uh, jobs that we thought were safe, like white-collar jobs because of this new AI technology, those kind of jobs are starting to become uh, automated too. So it's just that. Uh, however, I think the number of jobs, new type of jobs created will be larger than the jobs that the robots will take over. Like a good example is this. Before we had automobiles, before we had cars, there were no such thing as gas stations or uh, uh, insurance, auto insurance or car salespeople or car mechanics. All of these are new jobs that were created because of the auto industry. So I think and hope the same thing will happen with the robotics industry. When we start to have really robots widely used, then there's going to be new type of jobs created. Yeah. Another thing is, uh, in the future, let's say this is 2015. So we're living in the future, 2015. And there's a robot that's doing certain jobs. And I say, oh, back then in 2018, long time ago, people used to do these jobs that robots are doing today. Wow, those people were really <laughs> inhumane. So I think those type of jobs robot will start to replace. So it's I think it's a, it's a positive thing. I heard even in like medicine and law, mm -hmm. like a lot of the jobs will be replaced. But yeah, but you're a lawyer, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the things that the mundane, like searching for all the different right. cases, those are like not we so We don't want to do them yeah. anyway. <laughs> so automate that, let the AI do it. So the humans can do the more creative, the more, uh, you know, humane jobs, right, they, you know, the more right, fun right. stuff. So I think it's, uh, you know, so we shouldn't really fear AI, but we should be wise about how to utilize these new technologies. So, you know, when the first automobile, you know, appeared, you know, people didn't uh, freak out that the car was faster than the horse. That's right. We just <laughs> figure out how to utilize these new technologies. I uh, think it's the same thing with AI. So it is our responsibility yes. to use it in the way that really serves us, not hurts us. That's true. Yeah. Same thing with uh, uh, military robots. Ah, uh, got it. Uh, so we talked about, you know, robots replacing humans for jobs, but military uh, using robots for is a little bit different. Uh, so some people argue that if you use robots for war, we can actually reduce the uh, number of casualties. We can actually save people's lives. And I, and I do not disagree to that. However, I personally do not want to build robots that hurt people, whether they're the good guys or the bad guys, I don't care. I right. don't want my technology that I create to uh, hurt people. So, so you I, don't participate in any military projects? I do. Actually, mm -hmm. I, I, uh, my, all of my, many of my uh, projects are funded by the Navy, DARPA, uh, the military, the, the, you know, the side. However, I don't do weaponized robots, but oh, I do medevac robots, firefighting robots, demining robots, uh, you know, disaster relief robots, but I don't do weaponized robots. I see. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. Wow, so you are so creative. Oh, thank you. <laughs> where, so where do you get ideas for these robots? Like yeah, you've named I mean, a bunch. Yeah, ideas come from anywhere, anytime. So I always carry a notebook with a pencil and I always walk around and whenever I see something interesting, I always sketch something and I, I write that jot down. So ideas. real notebook. Real notebook. However, the these days, mm -hmm. I, I'm going to mention that in a minute, but I, I, I recently I changed a way. I, so these days I don't carry a, a physical notebook because now we have these smartphones and things. So I changed the way to do it, but I'll talk that in a minute. But I always like sketch things. Like for example, uh, we built a humanoid robot called Charlie, Cognitive Humanoid Autonomous Robot Learning Intelligence. That's the acronym for that. And it's considered the United States' very first adult-sized humanoid robot. It was a huge success. But when we were designing that robot, we had a hard time designing the knee. It didn't 
provide enough, it didn't produce enough torque. That's the, 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 the force that makes it move. And the range of motion was not that great. So two years before we started the Charlie Project, uh, right over here in New York, the, the Museum of Natural History. I, I, I'm a museum buff. I love to go to science museum, uh, art museums, things like that. And among the, all the like dinosaur bones and the fossils, there was a fossil of a deer that was instinct. In, instinct. So it doesn't exist anymore. But there's, and at the bottom of it, there was like a, like a sign, the picture with the explanation that says, the fossil that you're seeing right now here is an ancient deer that is now extinct. However, if you look carefully at the knee bone, it looks like a double pulley mechanism. And there was a sketch. I found that was fascinating. So I've, of course, I, I took out my notebook and I sketched that uh, the knee bone. So two years later, I'm, we're designing Charlie and we're having a hard time trying to figure out how to do it. So as I always do, I take out my idea notebooks and I flip through and then I found that sketch from two years before of this deer. So if you look at Charlie, the robots that we designed the knee, it looks exactly the same thing wow. same as the, uh, the deer uh, fossil. That so is we, we so get cool. In, yeah. Another very famous robot that we built is called uh, Strider, Self-Excited Tripedal Dynamic Experimental Robot. It's an acronym again. So it's a robot that has three legs. So you actually have to see it. So for those uh, listeners, if you're interested, do a Google search on Strider, a robot, then you'll see it. You have to see the animation. So it has three legs, but it walks in a very interesting way. So it falls forward and one of those legs swing between two legs catch the falls and stands up again. So it flips his body and it works in a, walks in a very interesting way. And this is a true story. How I got the inspiration was um, when I was a graduate student, so I was studying and I wanted to uh, uh, take a break. So I, I always go to this uh, park. Uh, so I was sitting on a park bench and there's another bench next to me and an old lady was braiding her daughter's hair. Oh. I've seen braided hair before, but this is the first time me seeing the braiding process. So how do you braid hair? You normally have three strands of hair, That's and then right. you put one strand of hair between the two, and you do that. So I thought that was very interesting. So as I always do, I start sketching that sequence. Of course, at the time, I was not thinking about robots. Maybe I was thinking about like puzzles or something like that. So 10 years passed, I became a professor, and the Navy approached me and asked me to uh, develop new type of uh, walking robot. So as I always do, I take out the notebooks, and I flip through, and I see these series of pictures that I sketched 10 years ago about braiding hair. And suddenly the hair starts to look like legs. And ah. if you look at how Strider walks, it's the exact same thing how the process of braiding hair. That's so right? cool. So again, this I get inspiration from, from braiding hair to a uh, you know fossil to many, many different things. So it's just you interacting and every seeing day seeing things every, yeah see. even today in the podcast you see is uh, the tripod thing yeah There's some interesting things i might use it for my really? future <laughs> oh awesome yeah. <laughs> so i went to your classroom mm -hmm. um to like observe how you teach yeah uh, this was uh, that was a long time oh my ago God, right? was when i was writing my book yeah and then what, one thing that I noticed that was really interesting, and you said um, when you're talking about different ideas, mm -hmm. that nobody criticizes anybody's ah, ideas or opinions. Yes. Yeah. So this applies when you do a brainstorming session. So brainstorming session is a special time where I invite, I like to open up to the general, you know, anybody can join, not only my lab or not only engineering, but anybody can come to our lab for this brainstorming session. So this is really a practice of training people how to come up with creative ideas. So one of the reasons why people 
hesitate to express their opinion or their ideas because they always fear how people might, you know, think about their idea. Yeah, of course. So, yeah. So at the beginning of the brainstorming session, I start the session by writing this golden rule on the blackboard. Nobody criticizes anybody's ideas. Nobody criticizes anybody's ideas. If you say something, when somebody says something and you start to criticize, then I'm, I kick, kick that student out of the classroom. Wow. And once you set this as the golden rule, then people don't fear about other people's opinion. And truly, your, your head opens up and ideas just pour out and the entire classroom just shakes with creative energy. Yeah. And that's a, such an amazing experience. And that's, that's what we do. Yeah. Wow. So you've had such an amazing career, but when was the most difficult time for you? Uh, so it is true for those who know me or right. follow me on <laughs> Facebook or, you know, uh, social media, I'm always having fun, exciting. You see me with my big smiles and that's true. That's my true self. I, yeah. I remember when I was researching about you to yeah. um, interview for the book, uh -huh. I was like, I don't know, I hadn't met you yet. Yeah. And I was like, looking at some pictures, I was like, is he really a professor? He looks like a kid. <laughs> I was like, yeah. who is this guy? And now that you know me, I'm always like that. You're, that's, all, you're always yeah, like that's that. That's my true self. Yeah. I am not afraid to show people who I really am. Right. Uh, people tend to make mistakes when they try to uh, hide who they try to show something you know, different from their true self. Of course, I'm always, uh, uh, you know, uh, yeah. So that's, that's my true self. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that doesn't mean that I don't fail. That doesn't mean that I don't, uh, you know, have hard times. So let's talk about robotics then, okay? So let's say you have an idea and research doesn't mean that you just have an idea and just build it and you're done. No, it's always a challenge. If you know that a solution exists, then you don't call that research, you call that homework. If you do not know if it's possible or not, but you actually challenge to achieve it, we, that we call research. So every time we, even if we have an idea and we get the research funding, there's no guarantee that this is going to work. It's always a challenge. Uh, because of that, we always fail. So it's interesting. We built, developed a lot of successful robots. We talked about Charlie, you, your favorite robot called Darwin, the small oh, kid. Oh, I know. Robot, yeah. So cute. We come up with all different types of things. But people like to see our final successful products. But nobody really wants to see all the small and big failures behind it. Uh. We fail so much. We always fall down. But we, we learn from our mistakes. We learn from our failures. And that's how you actually achieve it. Uh, so in our lab, I tell the students, uh, you know, if you fear failure, then you cannot achieve something big. As a matter of fact, if you don't fail, then that means that you're not trying hard enough. That's right. right? Innovation happens when you're when you're walking along the cliff, like you're about to fall down, that's when in true innovation comes out. But if you're afraid of falling, then what do you do? You just walk on the safe side. And if you walk on the safe side, then there's no innovation. Now, the one thing that I'm really proud of our lab, our lab is called Romela, the Robotics and Mechanism Laboratory, is that I create this environment where failure is accepted or, you know, it's okay to fail. It's okay to fail because, you know, everybody fails. I know a lot of successful people uh, but I know nobody who hasn't failed. Everybody fails. That's right. The difference is that if you just give up after failure, then that's the end. But if you learn from your mistakes, then that becomes a stepping stone for success, right? Yeah. So I want to teach and let our students actually experience that process. 
So we have a lot of failures in our lab. As a matter of fact, in our lab, the, these robots that we're building, these are multi-million dollar projects. And there's a, it's a one-of-a-kind prototype in the lab. So you don't want them to break, right? So there's a lot of other great robotics lab in the world, but our lab, Romela, is different from all the other robotics lab in the world. These robots, I tell the students to try to make it go faster, try to make lift heavier things, and I tell the students to break the robots. Because uh -huh. if you don't break the robot, if the robot doesn't fall and break, then you don't get to learn anything. It's just like when you're a kid, you broke everything at ah, home. Ah, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That is right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I never thought it that way. Yeah. Uh, so wow. we always fail in the lab and that's, 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 I, you know, that's, we understand that that's just a process. Uh, this, you know, one of the steps to go to success. However, however, I'm a little bit careful telling of this to other people. So I give lectures and give seminars, but I cannot just tell people working in a company, it's like, oh, don't fear failure. It's okay to fail. Because many times in business, you fail, then it could be disastrous and you cannot recover. So what I also want to add to that is, yes, it's okay to fail. But if you think you're going to fail, if the chance of failure is high, and first of all, before you challenge and try to do something, you have to, be, you have to think wisely. Is this, this project that you're about to undertake, is a, a success rate high or low, okay? Even if the fail, chances of failure is high, if the outcome is huge, then challenge, right? Uh. But even if the, fail, the rate of failure is really low, chances of failure is low, but if the outcome is small, then it's not worth it, right? Right. So multiply the chance of uh, success times the outcome and try to decide wisely, that's the first thing. So if you decide to undertake uh, this challenge, and if you think it's gonna fail, I mean, we're engineers, we analyze the things, then make sure you fail wisely. How do you do that? Yeah, so let's say we have this multi-million dollar human robot. I tell them to really to make it go faster and it's gonna fall. If you think it's gonna fall, try to figure out how it's gonna fall and for example, have a safety net or have a plan B, right? So you fail wisely, that's what I teach, you know? I'm not telling them just like, oh, go crazy and it's okay to fail. No, no, no. Because, you know, sometimes if the fail is too, the damage is too big, then you cannot recover. So it's okay to fail, but think wisely and then prepare for that and fail wisely. That's what I teach. So what are some of the failures in your personal life that you learned from? Ah, uh, uh, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say failure, but of course I had hardships. So if you look, if people who know me, my friends, and even you, uh, Looks like I grew up in a, you know, good family, a loving family, and I was never poor. I'm not rich, rich, but I was never poor. Good, educated, you know, well-educated. And people see me as, oh, Dennis Hong, he just lived a, you know, nice, smooth life. Uh, yes, so I'm very uh, happy and was very lucky. However, every life has, you know, hardship. Of course. Yeah, we're living. Everybody goes through a crisis. Yeah. My life crisis happened four years ago. So I was a professor at Virginia Tech for 11 years. And uh, I moved to UCLA four years ago. And during that transition period, uh, I went through the, the most difficult time of my life that actually shook the foundations of my my everything so it was difficult uh but probably i cannot really say things in uh, detail uh, uh in, in this podcast because there's still people who are active involved with this but i will just say that uh i lost everything in terms of my work 
yeah. during that. And I was betrayed by people that I trusted. I was yeah. betrayed by people that I considered they were my mentor. Uh, yes. That must have been so hard for you. Yes. But again, everybody goes through these kind of things. So, you know, so not only robotics research when my robots fail and break, but these kind of things every time in life, even if they're the, the most difficult at darkest time, if you look for it, you can always find something positive. Yeah. Right? Uh, so, yeah. Four years ago, that was the, the, the peak of my career. I become really famous. I'm always on the cover of magazines and yeah. you know, articles and everything. And everybody knows me. Especially in Korea, I'm, if I may say, I'm like a celebrity status. People yeah. in the street People recognize will know me. you yeah, yeah. and ask for your autograph. Mm -hmm. So, I'm a little bit ashamed to say this in public, but I didn't know then. But now that I think of it, I think I've been, I've been changing a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So my, my friends, high school friends, I now become my famous now. They, they contact me. I know let's have a drink and we're having beer. And they say, hey, Dennis, you've changed, right? Mm. And even my sister, she, my sister knows me the best. Since of course. Yeah. Like, yeah. hey, Dennis, you're, you're, you're changing. And I, I, I thought that they're just saying it because they're jealous. I think I was becoming arrogant, but I didn't realize that I was changing that way. So there was a, um, one specific instant that uh, made me realize this. I gave a talk in Korea in front of thousands of uh, students. And it was at, you know, after the talk, all those students, ah, it's almost like a rock concert, like people trying right. to pull in my hair. And I had a bodyguard to guide me out oh to the God. exit. I was so excited. So I came back to the hotel. I, mean, I was like all like, you know, excited. Like, wow, people really love me this much. And then I was washing my face in the bathroom. And then when I looked up, I saw the reflection of myself in the mirror. And suddenly I got shivers in my back. I, so when you look at the mirror, you see yourself, right? But I saw something different. I, it's difficult to explain. It's supposed to be myself, but the reflection that I saw in the mirror was not me. What did you see? I saw a person, somebody with a very arrogant, stiff neck going like this. Uh, and that's not me. That's not me. You know me, right? That's not me. Right, that is so not it's, you. So it's almost like I saw a ghost. And then I freaked out. And I just like sat down on the couch in the, 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 the hotel room. And I was like, they were just like shocked for about 10 minutes. And then I realized, oh, maybe I'm actually changing. This is the thing that my friends and my sister was trying to warn me, right? These, uh, when everybody loves you, when, when, when you become famous, when everybody wants you, then you start to change. Even though you think you're not, you change. And then it hit me, right? Uh, so... This hardship that I was going through when I was moving from Virginia to UCLA, I think, yeah, I mean, it's difficult to say. I, I, I was too successful. I was, everything is going great. My career was the top. And then sometimes, maybe sometimes you need to have somebody like hit the back of your head <laughs> and then wake up, Dennis, and, you know, realize, you know, where you truly belong, I would say. Uh, of course, so I do enjoy my fame. I have fan clubs. I have, like, yeah. you know, I enjoy when I go on TV shows and things like that. I enjoy it. But I always, when I come back home, I do know where I belong. And I try to put myself, push myself into this box where I belong. So that's what I do. So 
in a way, even though that experience was was very, very difficult for you, very difficult. it did serve a purpose of kind of making you be alert. Yes, or... yes. That's, that's how I uh, try to see it. Yeah. 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 Wow. So what would you want to tell your younger self? Oh, <laughs> do everything exactly what you're doing. <laughs> Break more stuff. I don't know. So uh, it might sound weird, but I, I am not always 100% proud of everything that I do, but I don't regret the things that I've done unless I actually uh, harm somebody, except for that. Uh, because, you know, whether it's a good thing or even a, a bad thing, it made me, all of those made me who I am today. And I'm very, very happy who I am today. So if I had to start my life all over again, I might do the same thing. So you've had a very successful career. Um, what have you learned about success that you can share with us? Uh, so in Korea, success, 성공, when you say, oh, 성공하신 분, he's a uh, person of success, uh, then that automatically means what? He's, uh, he made a lot of money, rich. So. Saying somebody is successful means that he made a lot of money, especially in Korea. But actually, if you think about it, the fact that you say success equals to making a lot of money means that, well, what is success? Success yeah. and failure. How do you it, define yeah. it? So success and failure is if you achieved what you planned, it's a success. And That's you have right. not achieved what you planned, then it's a failure. So if you say success equals making money, then automatically that assumes that what you want to achieve is making money. But in my case my life goal is not necessarily making money. Money is important, but there's much more many more important things in life. So for me, success does not make mean making money. So uh, it all depends on you know, everybody's philosophy or religious beliefs and things like that. But for me, so I'm living, right? So I was born not because I wanted to born, be born, but life was given to me. That's right. So starting from the point I was born to the, the day I die, what I want to do, my goal, it might sound really selfish, which is true. I want to maximize my own happiness. And that's my lifetime goal. I want to act, maximize my happiness from start to be boring to, till I die. It might sound really selfish, and that's true. I don't think it's selfish. But the interesting thing is, I feel most happiest when I make other people happy. Ah. You know, if you think about, I talked about my four dreams, roboticist, chef, magician, and theme park, right? If you, there, there's a, a common, common theme. That's I, right. Yeah, chef, I cook, you know, tasty meals and I share with my family and friends and share happiness. I do magic tricks and amaze people and entertain people, give them happiness. I design rides and people ride my roller coaster and they enjoy it. Uh, developing robotics technology to make the world a better place. So that's what drives me is to make other people happy. But because that makes me, myself, happy. Ah. So for me, uh, success for me is to, uh, of course, maximize my happiness. But one step before that is to make other people happy. Every day you're making robot, which is what yeah, you wanted Yeah, it's my dream since I was seven years old. <laughs> you How are. can you not be? I live in the campus with young, eager minds with their eyes sparkling, you know, full of energy. We discuss and build robots in our lab. We fail, we succeed, we, we learn from it. We truly believe that the technology we build will make the world a better place. How cool is that? 
right? I'm living my dreams. You are a very, very lucky guy. I am. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So we all know nobody succeeds alone, nobody achieves dreams alone. So who helped you to get to where you're now? When I first became a professor, this was at Virginia Tech, fresh out of grad school, fresh, you know, getting my PhD, I became a professor at Virginia Tech. And of course, the first thing uh, as a professor you need to do is to start writing research grants to get research funding to start your uh, research. Uh, so, right. I mean, I was pretty good at everything, but I was not, I never had uh, formal training for writing proposals. So every time I write a research proposal, it got rejected. I write another one, get rejected. It happened over and over again. And the first two, yeah. three years when I first became a, a, a professor, you know, my, my failure rate was almost 100%. And oh, wow. I was so disappointed, discouraged, and, you know, up to a point that I start worried that, you know, is this my real right path? And I actually cried in my office uh, at nighttime and nobody was, nobody was there. But uh, mm. there was one instance. So I went to uh, one of the uh, international uh, robotics conference that was held in Las Vegas at the time. Uh, so after the conference, uh, coming back to the airport, I took the airport uh, bus shuttle. And it was a full bus and there was just one empty seat. So I sat in there and right next to me, there is a uh, older gentleman. It was an Asian older gentleman. And as I always do, I'm really always kind and uh, be nice to people. And I like to talk about, you know, things. So I said, hi, my name is Dennis. And he said, oh, hi, my name is such and such. And I start talking to him about, oh, yeah, I became, just became a new professor at Virginia Tech. I do robotics. And I'm start to get excited and talk to, start talking to him, all these ideas. I have this cool idea about a three-leg robot that flips itself, amoeba robot that, you know, turns inside itself. So I start getting really excited. and you know, start talking to him. And normally, if you're just a regular person, you know, I talked about a lot of technical stuff, but this person was actually listening to what I had to say. And he was, it seemed that he was really interested in what I had to say. And then when the, uh, the bus uh, arrived at the airport, he introduced uh, himself to me officially that he said that uh, he's the uh, program director of robotics division at National Science Foundation. And National wow. Science, that's exactly where I uh, was supposed to submit my research proposal. It was a coincidence, right? right? So after that, he gave me his uh, business card and he told me to give him a call when you go back. So when I, I actually gave him a call, I visited uh, his office in Washington, D.C. And he gave me a lot of good uh, uh, advice and insight. He, he, he became my mentor. Uh, so every time I have a uh, research a proposal idea, he gave me feedback and ideas and who to collaborate with. And that really helped me. And after that, every time I submit a research proposal, it got all accepted. So he's one of my heroes. He's, uh, he's my savior, I should say. So the, the, the lesson is be kind to others everywhere all the time because you never know who will be your savior or who you will be helping, right? So yeah, yeah, be right. kind to others always. What is your dream now? You've done so much. What, what's, what's next for you? Uh, so, I mean, talking about my job as a roboticist, again, I do so many different type of things. So if somebody who's not in the field of robotics asks me, what, what do you do? I say, I build robots. I go, oh, that's cool. <laughs> but if a roboticist who does not know me and asks me, what do you do? 
then it's difficult to say because I do so many different things. If you have a world famous uh, uh, you know, uh, academic person in one area, then you're an expert in one thing. But I do so many things from autonomous cars, car for the blind, chemically actuated robot, human-aid robots, all different kind of things. So if, you, if we have this another interview or podcast next year, I might be doing something completely different. So you know, whenever I have different ideas and if it's the right time and if it's a technology that truly can make people happy, then I'll be doing that. So I don't know. Wow, looking forward to that. <laughs> yes. So my last question to you is, what would you want to say to people who are trying to pursue their dreams? Ah, uh, I think there's nothing more important than life is to find your dreams and pursuing your dreams and realizing your dreams because that gives you the most happiness. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it is true that not everybody, not all the times you can achieve your dreams because, you know, circumstances, you know, different type of things. But of having a dream is having a, uh, you have yeah, a goal, right? A goal. So you have to have a goal to at least go close to that. So. Well, thank you, Dennis, for being here and sharing your story. Thank you very much for having um, me. You are an inspiration for so many people. So I hope now that I've shared your story on my podcast, a lot more people get to know you and know about your work. Um, and I look forward to see what you create next. Thank you. And you are also an inspiration <laughs> to many people. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the conversation, I would really appreciate it if you can subscribe and write a review for the podcast. It really helps me to spread the word. And as I mentioned in the beginning of the show, please let me know where you're listening from and what you think about the show. And if you're interested in learning more about my coaching, I would be happy to answer any questions you may have. Please send me a message on my website, selinalee.co, that is C-E-L-I-N-A-L-E.co, and leave me a message there. So thank you again, and I'll be back soon with another episode.